0: Tonight, we are going to continue our eight week series titled What We Believe. Uh, Hearing these sermons and affirming belief in the doctrines they cover is going to be one of the qualifications for membership here at Love City. We've spent time over the past two weeks talking about membership, why we believe that's biblical. Um, We've spent a fair amount of time the last couple weeks talking about how we approach doctrine, that we have a two-handed approach to doctrine. Some doctrines are very clear in the scriptures, and they're essential, and they're things that have to be contended for, right? Things like the fact that Jesus is the only way to heaven, or the fact that the scriptures are the inerrant, perfect word of God. These are things that, if you don't believe those, really, you're unchristian, right? And so there are certain things we do have to defend. There's open-hand topics, there's open-hand doctrines, things that are maybe less clear, that there's room for interpretation on. And uh, things like that include, you know, gifts of the Spirit, even things like what people wear to church. I mean, there are Christians throughout time that have separated and divided from each other over what it is they wear on the outside of themselves when they gather together as the church. I don't think Jesus cares a whole lot about that. I think he's much more interested in your heart being ready and, and clean uh, with, with no anger or bitterness, forgiving everybody, and coming into his house ready to worship him. Amen? Amen. So we're not going to argue over things that, that don't need to be argued, and um, if we can ever help it, one, one of the highest ethics, one of the highest principles in all the New Testament, if you look through, you know, obviously our mission screams loud what we believe is important because that's what Jesus said was important, right? We, we want to love God, love people, and make disciples. Clearly that's important, but other things you'll see in the New Testament that make the top of the list of being really important is always being humble. It's always right to be humble. In every situation, if you take the humble road, you've taken the right road. Philippians 2 says that we have to have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. He considered every single one of us more important than himself. That's how he hung on a cross for us. It's amazing. Because I'm not more important than him. Are you? No, man, he's the king of glory. He was there at creation. (laughs) He has always been, which means I'm not near his status. Yet, he died for me. So you always got to be humble. And, And Jesus cares a lot about unity, unity in his body. And so... We don't, we don't divide with other Christians. If, if someone is a faithful Christian, then we, we will not divide, and we want to actually join with them and help however we can to further the mission of the gospel, right? That's what we're about. We want to tell as many people as possible about the good news of Jesus. Amen. Uh, this week we're going to be exploring together the doctrine of uh, what is commonly referred to as the fall, okay? Uh, and some of you may be tempted to check out right away uh, because you already know the story, you've heard it before, you may have read it dozens of times, you may have heard it preached dozens of times, um, but tonight I don't want you to just know the story, but I want you to work with me to, I want you to feel the depth of what it means in your heart, uh, because it has a lot of weight and a lot of significance as, as it comes to the whole gospel narrative and also the way we interpret life today. Uh, the day that mankind sinned and fell from our privileged relationship with God, our Creator, is undoubtedly the most tragic day in all of human history. Uh, Some of you would perhaps leap at the chance to try to name for me another period of time or perhaps another day that was more tragic. You may bring things up like the Holocaust or you may bring something up like Rwandan genocide or bloody uh, wars throughout all of time or even terrorist attacks of various sorts and kinds. You would say... You may say to me, how is it that you would say the day the two people you know, ate the no-no fruit off the tree, how's that the worst day ever? What's the big deal about that, right? Nobody got murdered. Nobody got raped. Nobody got abused. A lot worse things have happened than that. But here's, here's the key thing we fail to consider. The reason why the day that mankind fell, the reason why we sin- the, the day that we sinned and rebelled against God is, is the most tragic day in all of human history, is that that day led to the possibility of all those other days. The day that mankind fell in sin is the reason why any of those other atrocities were ever possible. And that is why it is by far the most tragic day we have in our whole history. It's the day that we use the gift God gave us to choose whether to obey Him or not. We pridefully rebelled against Him instead of humbly submitting to Him. It's a sad day. It's a day that should grip our hearts. The thought of us being connected to God in perfect communion and being separated by sin, it should, it should cause something to happen in us. Uh, understanding the doctrine of the fall is the only thing that gives us a contextual framework to make sense of the darkness, evil, pain, and suffering that's in the world today. If we're all honest, can, can we just be honest with each other for a second? Is there not a sense somewhere deep in every single one of us that things are not as they should be? I mean, does that not resonate with you? Does you look around, and you see the way people treat people. You see the, the, the evil that is possible in this world because of, because of folks that don't submit to or serve God. It, it just doesn't look right. And, and, and natural disasters, all the terrible things that happen, something seems not right, and that's because it's not. We're separated from the God who made us by our sin. The world is full of evil, pain, and suffering, and it becomes ever more popular for men and women to shake their fist at God and blame him, the God that they claim they don't believe in, but they'll, they'll believe in him long enough to shake their fist at him, blaming him for all of the evil and the fact that they can't reconcile how all of that works, and blaming him for the emptiness they feel in their heart, when all along it was us and our rebellion that got us where we're at. We covered the Doctrine of Creation a couple weeks ago, uh, and that's available online if you need to catch up. But in case you're new, or maybe this is your first time you've been to church in a long time or ever, maybe you've never heard the Bible preached, I just want to bring you up to speed. We're going to kind of give you a snapshot of what happened up to chapter 3 in Genesis, which is where we're going to be today. Um, Pretty much what happens, God creates the heaven and the earth. He creates all creatures, all living creatures on the whole world. Um, The pinnacle of his creation, the Bible says, is mankind. He makes us in his own image and likeness. Uh, We were made to be in relationship with God. Uh, And not only in relationship with him, but to relate to him as his children. Everything was perfect. There was no death, no pain, no suffering, no sorrow. Everything was as it should be. God creates Adam first, and then he graciously gives him a companion in Eve that is different from him in all the right ways that they, so that they complement and enjoy each other. The last verse of chapter 2 of Genesis uh, summarizes kind of the beautiful, perfect, utopian existence that was going on at that point. Uh, and here's the summary that it gives. This is the end of chapter 2, right before chapter 3, where things start to go the other way. Uh, this is its summary. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. <laughs> That's how the Bible summarizes pre-curse creation. Like, just trying to let you know things were good, right? It sounds good, doesn't it? Don't act all stuffy on me. I know everyone in here was, was trying not to think about how awesome it would be if that's what was going on right now, especially as hot as you are, okay? Now, because uh, it's hot in here. Yes, I understand. Um, but that does sound good. They were naked and not ashamed. In a garden, perfect, no pain, no suffering. Um, and they weren't devoid of shame about their nakedness. It's not, they didn't not have shame Because they had been doing really good on their garden diet, like eating more vegetables than fruits. And, you know, they'd been jogging a lot. And so they were like chiseled and and everything was ripped up firm where it should be, you know. That's not what their lack of shame was about. Their lack of shame was tied to the fact that uh, sexuality had not been perverted yet. It was still a beautiful gift given by a loving God that could be enjoyed inside the context of marriage. There was no reason for shame. There was no sin. There was no guilt. Everything was perfect. Every gift God had given had not yet been, been, been perverted, uh, perverted and tainted by sin. Uh, so that's how things start out. Let's, um, let's turn to Genesis chapter 3 together, if you haven't done that already. And we're just going to start in verse 1. should be right at the front, real easy to find. So we're going to start reading in chapter 3. And we're just going to, we're going to actually, we're going to go through the whole chapter. And we'll stop here and there and uh, see what we can humbly learn from what's going on in, in, in this chapter, okay? Starting in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, we learn from Revelation twelve nine that this serpent is not just any run-of-the-mill garden snake. Uh, Revelation 12:9 tells us that this snake was Satan himself, coming as a deceiver. Okay, um, and we're going to see in a minute, as we continue reading, that Adam was standing right here with her. She, uh, only Eve is mentioned at first, but it makes it clear further in the in the scriptures here that Adam was right there, which is going to matter. Um, but can I say first that I, I'm not even totally sure how this conversation got as far as it did, because if if I'm walking in the woods or a jungle or pick your scene with my wife. And, uh, you know, out from a tree drops a snake, like, pss, you know, and starts saying anything at all. Like, you know, if, if this is me and my wife, he'd have been, you know, indeed has God. wham, rock to the face, snake dead, right? I might drag it back to civilization so someone can run tests on it and see where did it get vocal cords. But, you know, I'm not sure what Adam was doing here or why the conversation got to the point where Eve's, like, answering it and taking advice. This is all... Bad, right? Um, and, and we're going to put it on Adam here in a second, because so, uh, that's where it belongs. But the first uh, sin committed by mankind that is recorded in this chapter here in Genesis 3 uh, is often referred to as the original sin. I, I think it's important, though, we need to remember that this was not the first sin. Uh, Satan was an angel named Lucifer. Uh, according to Ezekiel, he was beautiful to behold, and Revelation 12 depicts uh, him falling from heaven. Pride caused him to think himself worthy to be worshipped as God. So he and many angels with him were cast from heaven for this rebellion. Pride was the first sin, and it is the root of every single sin that has ever been committed. Pride was the first sin, and it is the root of every single sin that has ever been committed. Pride is the mother of all sins. Remember that. You're struggling with sin? Ask the Holy Spirit to show you how to get past the symptoms and go all the way down to the root. And see how pride is causing that. You will always find it there. That is, pride is the very source of all sin. Um, but let's notice, let's notice the approach of Satan here. Uh, right? He, he doesn't jump out from behind a tree with like an I hate God t-shirt on and say, hey, I got an idea. Let, let's do this. Let's rebel against God and open the door for sin and evil and pain and suffering for the whole world for all of time what do you think? You want to do that? No. He doesn't do that, does he? He comes subtly. He comes deceptively. He comes changing or questioning just a couple of the words that God said. He's not going to make it obvious, and and some of you can relate to that. Some of you have fallen, been entangled in sin, and by the time the sin is done, you're looking back, and you can't remember how the heck you even got there. You don't remember the process that you went through mentally to go from I don't do this type of stuff because I don't want to dishonor or disobey God to I've already done it. And that's the thing we have to understand, the tactics of our enemy. He is a deceiver and he is subtle and he's a liar. And that's what he's trying to do here with Eve. So um, after Satan is able to pull her into a conversation and intrigue her with his subtle deception, he goes on to directly contradict what God has said. He convinces her that God lied and that his real motive was to withhold something good from her. You see that? You see that in, in, um, in verse 5? For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan wants to convince Eve, oh, here's the thing. God just doesn't, there's some really fun stuff that will happen if you eat this fruit. And God just wants to keep that from you. Any of you ever felt that way before or known somebody that has? I can't be a Christian. I don't want to be a Christian. Look at all the stuff I'd have to give up. Look at all the stuff, man, there's all this fun stuff, or look at all the stuff I won't get to experience, or feel like submitting to God means you have to be robbed of some joy. When all the time, come to find out you bite into the fruit and you really start to reap the consequences of that, you find out there was no real joy in it. It was a liar all the time. It was a counterfeit, and, and its promises fell short. And sin will always do that. Sin will always promise to deliver more than it ever can. It's going to promise joy. It's going to promise relaxation. It's going to promise this, this relief. and never come. And it's, it's going to sting and it's going to hurt. That's all sin does. Let's read verses 6 and 7 together. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. pride You can see pride beginning its work, making Eve feel entitled to that fruit. You hear that word? Entitled. For many of us, we need to check ourselves. We have many senses of entitlement in our life, like this shouldn't be this way, or this should be this way. And Satan can easily get us. Maybe we wouldn't say it out loud to our friends, but we can be upset or disappointed with God feeling like he's cheating us somehow. Entitlement. What are you entitled to? You and me, and the the crux of this story, what we're going to find out by the end of Genesis 3, is what you and me deserve is hell and eternal separation from God. Well, that was fun, wasn't it? You guys really liked that one. Um, Actually, you know, we're running these fans, but we turned the AC off as a, as a demonstration and an object lesson about hell, so you're welcome. Yeah, it's good. Don't go there. Okay? Um, so we see that, uh, I'm just, I'm kidding, it's on. Uh, pride begins its work making Eve feel entitled to the fruit um, of the one tree that God said not to eat of. And pride also convinces her, get this, that her desire to eat of that fruit is more important than obeying God. And that's where we get, every single time we choose to sin, we choose to disobey God instead of obey God, we are deciding that what it is we think we want is of greater importance than what it is God has commanded, or pleasing Him, right? You have to make that decision in order to disobey Him. Me, my desires, what I think is right, definitely more important than what God has told me is right. doesn't sound right when you break it down like that, does it? But that's what we do. You have to. You have to. Now, uh, where does verse 6 say Adam was? It's right there. It's right there. This jelly-spined passivity exhibited by Adam on this day has echoed through the centuries plaguing men, families, cultures, and the whole human race. Much of the rampant departure from biblical standards in our culture today can be directly linked to the failing of husbands and fathers. We see the effects of this all the way through today. And until Jesus returns and turns all things right and makes all things that have been broken and fragmented by sin, until he brings all those things to reckoning, we will continue to see issues and and, and hurt come from husbands and fathers not standing their post. The Scriptures teach us that men are to be spiritual leaders of their homes. They are supposed to be the gatekeepers and defenders against deception and evil. This is why masculinity and the role of fathers has been so eroded. It's a strategic part of Satan's plan to keep as many people as possible deceived. If Adam had been on post and manned up and done his job, there wouldn't have been a conversation allowed where someone was contradicting the very words of the creator God trying to deceive his wife. If Adam was on his post, nobody's coming up to his wife talking about, hey, 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 let me make a suggestion. You should disobey God. What he said, totally untrue. I know more, I've got better information, you should listen to me. You, you, you need, if, if you want to try to do that with my wife, bring a lot of friends and pack them a lunch too because it's going to be a hard day. Nobody's going to come and, and nobody's going to lie to my wife flat out. Certainly you're not going to try to deceive and lead her away from God to serve Satan. No deal. We're going to war. And I hope something's leaping up in you men of God that are husbands and fathers. I hope something is is trickling up on the inside. you. You feel a little bit of steel infusing in your spine because this is what we need today. And if you're not a husband and father yet, I hope this excites you to be one. One of the greatest and most honorable things you will do with all of your life will be to marry a woman and lead her and to have children and lead them. One of the greatest missions God will ever send you on is to have a family. To be the gatekeeper, shepherd, pastor of your own home, to love them and to lead them and to show them what it is to be a real man and to follow Jesus. If you could do that and nothing else, you've lived a good life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's read verses 8 through 13. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Let's pause for a second. Does sin not make you do dumb stuff sometimes? Can we just think about what, what can we just think about, where's Adam and Eve at right now, right? We just got done, we just got done eating of the fruit that God told us not to eat of, and, and here he comes. God, mind you, the, the one that not so long ago breathed in dust and brought us into creation, you know, made all of this with with the sound of his voice, the omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful God? Let's hide behind trees. He won't see us there. Right? And yet, this is what we do, man. This is what we do. This is the kind of mentality that sin gets us into, and it breaks my heart. Oftentimes, I will spend time trying to persuade people that are, are weighed down with various sins that the mentalities that they've adopted are foolish not because I want to prove them wrong, but because I love them. And it's so dumb to hide behind a tree from God. He sees you. (laughs) So wherever you think you're hiding or whatever you thought you've hidden, let me be the one to tell you lovingly, it's out in the open. You might as well lay it in your lap and look to heaven and say, here you go, Jesus, because he knows. You're not hiding nothing. But he loves you. And he says that if, if you'll be If you'll be humble and you'll repent of your sin, that He's faithful and just to forgive you of it, and that's amazing. He's long-suffering. Some of you've been hiding stuff for a long time. Some of you've been hiding stuff for so long that you forgot about it. But the Holy Ghost will help you. The Holy Spirit will remind you, and He'll bring that stuff to the surface. Not so you can feel bad about it again. That's not the point. So you can lay it at the feet of Jesus. Because here's what, here's what He does. He says, "Bring me your sin. Bring me your failing. Bring me your trouble." Bring me your doubts. You lay those at my feet, and I'll trade you back peace and joy and righteousness and right standing with God the Father. The only one out there trading junk for the most beautiful treasure you can get. That's why I love him. Okay, so don't try to hide from God. It won't work. So, then the Lord God called to the... Then the Lord God called to the... You guys got one more shot. I'm going to do something to you. The Lord God called to the man. Thank you. You hear that, man? Who did he call to? Man. He called to you. He didn't say, hey, Eve, where you at? Who would he want to come and account for what was going on? The man. I need you to see that because it's important. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? As if he didn't know. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? So God doesn't beat around the bush. We're not going to have a counseling session. We're not going to talk about how everyone feels about everything. God just comes and says, did you do what I told you not to do? Adam, how do you know you're naked, brother? (laughs) You wouldn't know that unless you disobeyed me, right? Right? So God goes and deals right with the heart. Um, It's kind of funny. I don't know if you ever got caught in a lie when you were a kid or got caught doing something bad, but when, (laughs) I think it's kind of funny here how how God kind of, kind of talks like a parent in verse 11. He says, he says, uh, who told you you were naked? You know, you can see him asking Adam that question and Adam like suddenly realizing the very fact that he told God. You know, you, you ever, your parents ever outsmart you when you were a kid and, like, get you to tell on yourself? You know, it's like, it's like, Adam, where are you? I hid myself because I'm naked. Who told you you were naked? You could just see Adam's face. You know, he knew. He knew. He was like, I'm busted. I'm busted, right? Like, yeah, he knows. Okay. I just thought that was funny. You can feel free not to. Uh, verse 12 said, or verse 12 says, um, yeah, this, this gets interesting here. In verse 12, it says, the man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave, she gave me from the tree and I ate. <laughs> yep. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Here's the thing. Adam and Eve try to put blame off on everybody else. Let's be honest, we all do this, don't we? It's a lot easier to point somewhere else when we're confronted with our sin. We all have this propensity. We all tend to do this. We blame parents, siblings, friends, circumstances, and anything else we can point to to avoid culpability and responsibility. And had it been you or me in the garden, we would have done the same thing. Now, you could be tempted right now to really, like, jump on Adam and Eve's case and, you know be like, you know, thanks a lot, guys, for screwing up the whole world. You know, like, last chapter, we were talking about running around in the ferns with no clothes, and everyone's happy, no pain, no sickness, no death, perfect communion with God the Father, and you guys had to eat the fruit, didn't you? One tree, and you could not do it, right? So, and because we're on the other side of this thing, like, we see all the consequences. We feel all the consequences, don't we? Like, you're not numb to the fact that Life can be jacked up, right, because of sin, because of the curse, because of the fallen nature of the world. Nobody here is experiencing any pain right now or ever has or understands that life's tough. Oh, good, well, we can close this up and go home. Life's tough, right? There's stuff that goes on in this life as a result of the curse that is hard to answer. It's hard to even understand. It's real out there, and it, it, it doesn't seem to be getting lighter. It seems to be getting darker. However... We have the hope of the scriptures that tells us the darker it gets out there, the brighter the light of Christ in us is going to shine. And so we don't get discouraged. But we're also not naive. The effects of the fall are they're not going backwards. We see it every day. Any of us would have done the same thing. I'm telling, put you and me in the garden, we would have done what Adam and Eve did. You may not be convinced of that. I believe that all of this boils down to God's choice to give us a free will. There are some who do not believe that we have any free will at all, that we are simply puppets on a string and that God is the puppet master. If that was the case, then why the tree? Why even leave a chance to disobey? If what he wanted was robotic slaves, he could, he could have easily created us that way, but he didn't. He put us in a garden and he gave us a choice, obey or disobey. If you wanted robots, there'd have been no reason for a tree. And if you're someone who wants to blame God for all the pain and suffering in the world, this is the only bone that you have to pick with him, but you're still wrong. Because you could say to God, I wouldn't suggest it, but you could, you should have never given us a choice. If that's what led to all the evil and pain that I've experienced personally in my life, if that's what's led to all the evil and pain that every human has experienced through all of the timeline of history then why didn't you just not give us a choice? It would seem better if you would have just made us robots or made us without the ability to choose to disobey you. The results seem to cost too much. What could the value be in us having that choice? Couldn't we have just been slaves? Wouldn't that have been better? The first problem with this, the first problem with coming to God with this type of, attitude is that it arrogantly assumes that you know better than God what should have been done. Never the right approach. God's thoughts are higher. His ways are deeper. He's much, much smarter than we are. He's existed forever. He is our creator. And so we never, ever have the right to shake our fist at him demanding an answer. We trust him because he's proven himself good and he's proven himself faithful. He needs to do no more to prove to us his love than he did on the cross, letting Jesus hang there for our sins. You need more proof? I don't. We shouldn't. Secondly, the second problem with this is that it doesn't consider that God wanted to relate to us as his children. Jesus instructs us to pray to God as father, and this is the most prevalent relational example you will see in the scriptures. When we are told through the scriptures how it is we are to come to God, we are instructed that we can come to him as Father. If, that's, if that doesn't, I don't care if you've been saved 50 years, if that doesn't still mess you up in a good way, you, you need to spend some time with Jesus thinking about it. We're talking God of the universe here. Are you over this already? The God of the universe, perfect, ever-existent God that created everything thinks of you like his kid? He could have made us as nothing more than throwaway slaves, man. what He's God. He could have done anything. And, and, and the fact that he would make us to be his kids Knowing how much trouble we would be, he knew. He's got perfect foreknowledge, he exists outside of time. He sees the whole end of this thing going down already. He knows exactly how it's going to go. He knows how many times you personally were going to turn around, spit in his face, and rebel against him. Not to mention, he knew what Adam and Eve were going to do, and he still went through all of this. It's amazing. That's why it's not hard for me to lift my hands and lose myself in telling him how much I love him. Because he's good and he's worthy of worship. C.S. Th- Lewis said this on the subject. God created things which had free will. That means creatures which can go wrong or right. Some people think they can imagine a creature which was free but had no possibility of going wrong. But I can't. If a thing is free to be good, it's also free to be bad. And free will is what has made evil possible. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, of creatures that worked like machines, would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and a woman on this earth is mere milk and water. And for that, they've got to be free. Of course, God knew what would happen if they used their freedom the wrong way. Apparently, he thought it was worth the risk. If God thinks this state of war in the universe... A price worth paying for free will? That is, for making a real world in which creatures can do real good or harm and something of real importance can happen instead of a toy world which only moves when he pulls the strings? Then we may take or understand that it is worth paying. I believe with the option to choose whether to obey or not comes an insatiable curiosity of what would really happen if we disobeyed. We can see it with children, can't we? I mean, even if you don't have kids, you, you, you probably have been exposed to them enough to understand that this is true. And some of you may be in your 30s, 40s, potentially 50s, and this still be true of you. <laughs> so you don't just have to be kids. But you, you tell a kid, don't touch that light bulb. What now do they want to do more than anything in the universe? Why is it that inherently in free will there is this insatiable curiosity? I got to know what, what will happen if, if I do disobey. Like I know I could just obey and it, it, it would be all right. I could go that way, but what if? And I think it's that, it's that inerrant curiosity that's there that would cause, it, it, it was just a matter of time. It could have been you or me, Adam or Eve or anybody else in that garden. At some point we would have had to, we would have had to scratch that itch to know. Why why did God say we can't eat that fruit? Like, is the snake right? Is it going to make us as awesome as God? Like, what's the deal? You know? And so I would just encourage you, don't be so hard on Adam and Eve, because you'd have done it too. That's the bottom line I'm getting at there. Uh, Though there has been unbelievable atrocities and tragedies because of the fact that we had a choice and that we chose to rebel, we have the beautiful encouragement that once those of us who have put faith in the finished work of Christ are spending eternity with Him, there will never be another temptation to touch the light bulb. Think about that. Whether Jesus comes to get us or we die and go home to be with him. There's ne- we don't need any more object lesson on what happens when you disobey God, do we? I don't need to touch the light bulb anymore. I know what it's like to be separated from God. I know what it's like to watch a world wretch and throw back and forth, groaning to be reconciled to its creator. I know the pain that comes from disobedience and rebellion against God. And so, in a way, I'm not sure that God wasn't aware that we needed to go through this. So that on the other end for eternity, nobody's going to be sitting around wondering, well, what if, what if we disobey him? We had to get that out of the way. We did disobey. We did fall away. We did have a curse put upon us. This world is cursed. But thank God, he made a way that we can be reconciled through Jesus. And when we spend eternity with him, I'm not going to sit around and wonder. I wonder what would happen if one of us just didn't do what God says. I already know. You had enough of this? I've had enough. I've had enough. The third reason that questioning God's sovereign choice to give us the option to obey or not is foolish. So I gave you two. Here's the third one is that you forget that any pain any human has ever felt as a result of sin and our fallen state, God has felt more acutely and intensely than we could ever imagine. See, we think that we empathize and feel the pain, you know, from our own lives, our own experiences, struggles in our own families and with our own friends. And we can look at tragedies that happen around the world, people that struggle, um, especially when, when children suffer and people throughout all the world are suffering because of the results of of the fall and the curse and and we feel that in our hearts and it hurts us because we care. It's, It's so ignorant for us to think that God does not feel that. He feels it more than we could have a possible capacity to. He's a perfect father. It hurts his heart. Sin hurts him. Our pain and suffering hurts him. He cares about it. Way more than we do. And so for us to shake our fists at him and act like it's not worth it that he allowed us the option to be his children and to obey him or not, as if he didn't count the cost first. Any pain we've suffered, anything we've gone through. And, and, and the Bible instructs us, most of us don't think about tragedy, suffering, tribulation right anyways. Because the Bible instructs us that if we'll trust Jesus, and if we'll see and we'll walk the way he did through tribulation and struggle, that what that builds in us is character and it makes us better equipped to not only make it through the next struggle but to help someone else through theirs. This is what God's called us to. We're in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, "'Because you have done this, "'cursed are you more than all the cattle "'and more than every beast of the field. "'On your belly you will go, "'and dust you will eat all the days of your life.'" And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, curse is the ground because of you, In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Verses 15 and 16. I want to show you here that uh, this is is written a very long time before Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Mary. But what you see here is what is commonly referred to as the proto- evangelion. It's the first gospel. This is the first time, as you, if you're going to read your Bible front to back, where you are going to see the gospel starting to be foreshadowed and told. And it's beautiful. What does it say? It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. You see, uh, most of the time that bloodlines are tracked paternally in the scriptures through the fathers, you see no mention of a father, just a mention of a mother. Well, that would make sense, wouldn't it, if we're talking about Jesus, right? And so what we're seeing here is that, yes, the enemy's going to bruise the heel of Christ, but ultimately his head will be crushed. Jesus will have the victory. So you know what? All of us have felt the bruised heel of living in this world in this fallen state, have we not? We've been knocked around. Life's hard. We have, we have suffered underneath the weight of the fact that this world is not perfect as it was originally intended. However, we have hope because of Christ. We can strive and push through because we know this is not the end. This is not all there is to hope for. This is not the end of it all. There will come a a day when Jesus will come and make everything that's wrong right again. Every enemy he will lay waste to. His enemies will become his footstool and he will allow us to reign with him, none of which we deserve. And yet he's made it so. Because he's that loving and that awesome, that gracious and that merciful. Verse 20, now the man called his wife's name E because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Here you see the first animal sacrifice where blood is shed, again foreshadowing Christ and his coming. Then the Lord God said, behold, uh, the man has become like one of us. You see Trinitarian language here already in Genesis. Knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Genesis 3 is probably the most succinct text we have laying out what we commonly refer to at Love City as the bad news, right? It's letting us know we are separated from God by sin. And I want to say that, you know, I, I, I would encourage you to not get into, Paul, Paul instructs us to not get stuck into theological debates and, and, and arguing back and forth about things that are not fruitful. Uh, And and I started out talking at the beginning of this service about humility on purpose because there is controversy and there is disagreement among Christians about the nature of God's foreknowledge, sovereignty, whether or not men really do have any type of free will whatsoever. Um, Ultimately, we're talking about God's foreknowledge. We're talking about the fact that God knows everything throughout all of time. And here's, here's a good humility exercise. Try to think about time never starting. You can't. <laughs> you can't, man. You, we, our, our carnal mind is finite. We, we, we have the parameters of time and space around us all the time. Try to think about time never ending. Like you, it's, I can't even imagine something eternal. It's, it's too big. And so when you start to try to nail down exactly what God did know or how much that affected this or that, Ultimately, here's the bottom line. We did rebel. We did sin. We did fall. That separated from us from God. That's the bad news. The great news. And, and that, that's really bad news. It's really bad news because what it is required to stay in fellowship with God is what we had in the beginning, and that's perfection. And none of us is perfect. So that puts all of us in trouble. That's bad news. That's bad news for everybody. But that's what makes the good news so good. Because Jesus made a way. Jesus came, he lived the perfect life that every one of us was called to live but that we couldn't do it. He lived that perfect life so that he could stand in our place, dying the death we should have died. Paying the price we should have paid but never could have. He did that. He carried that cross, he was nailed to it. He bled and died on our behalf. He was our substitute, he was the sacrifice that paid the price. And the beautiful thing about it is he didn't stay dead. Three days later he rose validating everything he said that it was true. Many witnesses saw him and then he ascended to the Father where he sits now interceding even today for the dumb stuff we're doing even now. <laughs> wow. I'm glad I'm not God. I don't think I'd have messed with all of you. or me for sure, right? You understand what I'm talking about? We've been a lot of trouble. But he's really merciful and that's how much he loved us even before he made us. And all of this points to his glory. What this should lead us to is to declare his glory. It should lead us to worship him. See, talking about the fact that God went through with it, that God didn't look forward into future and see all of the pain and suffering that mankind would cause him and each other, the fact that he went ahead and made us shouldn't make us feel greater about ourselves. It should make us feel better about him. It should make us be more enamored with his mercy. I don't know if I'd have done it, but he did, and I'm really grateful. And I'm grateful that he's powerful enough to work throughout all of history, still dealing with our sin and our suffering and our Failures to obey, he can still work through all of that and get his will accomplished. Let let me say it this way Does mankind have some level of free will? I think absolutely clearly from the scriptures choose this day whom you're going to serve. Do eat of the fruit, don't eat of the fruit. There has to be some element of free will. However, is God sovereign? Yes. Both are true. Both are absolutely true, and so we have to be humble in working through that and what that means. God is sovereign. His ends are going, ultimately what He wants to happen is going to happen, flat out. And the quicker we get on that train, the better we'll be. (laughs) He's good. He's good, and He's all-powerful. He is sovereign. He's worthy of all of our adoration, all of our allegiance.